You are listening to the teaching and preaching of Dr. Warren Wearsby. This message was recorded while he served as pastor of Calvary Baptist Church in Covington, Kentucky, or the Moody Church in Chicago, Illinois. For additional resources, please visit 2ProfitU.com. That's the number two, P-R-O-P-H-E-T-U.com. And now, Dr. Warren Wearsby. God to the book of Esther, chapter 4. Esther, chapter 4, beginning at verse 10. Most of you remember from your own Bible reading the story of Esther. She doesn't know that the enemy, Haman, has gotten permission to kill all the Jews. And she looks out the window of the palace and she sees her cousin, Mordecai, parading back and forth in sackcloth and ashes and she sends some better clothes out to him. And he sends word into her and says, the clothes don't make any difference. We're all going to be in shrouds unless you do something. Verse 10, And Esther spoke unto Hathak and gave him commandment unto Mordecai, saying, All the king's servants and the people of the king's provinces do know that whoever, whether man or woman, shall come unto the king into the inner court who is not called. There is one law of his to put him to death, except such to whom the king shall hold out the golden scepter that he may live. But I have not been called to come in unto the king these thirty days. And they told to Mordecai Esther's words. Then Mordecai commanded to answer Esther, Think not with thyself that thou shalt escape in the king's house more than all the Jews. For if thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then shall their relief and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. But thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed. And who knoweth whether thou art come to the kingdom for such a time as this? Then Esther told them to return Mordecai this answer, Go, gather together all the Jews who are present in Shushan, and fast ye for me, and neither eat nor drink three days, night or day. I also and my maidens will fast likewise. And so will I go in unto the king, which is not according to the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went his way and did according to all that Esther had commanded him. There are two books in the Old Testament, as you know, that are written about beautiful courageous women. One is Ruth and the other is Esther. As I've mentioned in a previous message, Ruth is the story of a Gentile who married a Jew. Esther is the story of a Jewess who married a Gentile. 
Ruth is a story of poverty and begins with a famine. Esther is the story of riches and it begins with a feast. And yet both of these women were used of God to bless and to help the Jewish nation. You and I would probably not be here tonight as believers in Jesus Christ were it not for the work that these two women did. Now, the story of Esther falls into three parts. I'm surprised they haven't made a TV drama out of this. I'm sure they can't because the good guys win in this story. It's very difficult to put that on television. You can't find a sponsor for it. Chapters 1 and 2 we'll call the selection of Esther. In chapter 1, the king gets drunk. This is Xerxes, the great king. He gets drunk and tries to make a fool out of his wife, and she's too smart for that, and she says no, and so he deposes her. And then he gets lonely, and in chapter 2, they have a beauty contest, and a Jewess named Esther is chosen to be the queen. The selection of Esther, chapters 1 and 2. Now, at this point, the bad guy comes in. His name is Haman, and he's an Amalekite. And all the way through the Bible, the Amalekites are the enemies of the Jews. And he's out to destroy the Jewish nation because he hates one man. He hates Mordecai. Mordecai is Esther's cousin, and Mordecai is a godly man, and Mordecai will not bow down to Haman. This would be interesting in a drama as Haman comes out of the palace and he has the authority of the king and everyone bows and scrapes to the great Haman and Mordecai just stands there and stares. Haman hates him and because Mordecai is a Jew, Haman declares war on all the Jews. But in 3 through 7, we have the detection of Haman because Esther is able to expose Haman for what he really is, a traitor. And, of course, he is destroyed. But we still have a problem. The king has passed a law, and being the law of the Medes and the Persians, it cannot be changed, stating that all the Jews were to be killed. Haman had cast his lots, and the lot had fallen to the end of the year. At the end of the year, it was going to be legal to swoop down upon the Jews and kill them. Well, the king does a smart thing finally. He gives Haman's authority to Mordecai. Mordecai says, pass another law that the Jews can defend themselves. That'll take care of it. That's what they did. And so in chapters 8 through 10, you have the protection of Israel. The uh, Persian people didn't dare attack the Jews, and those who did were slain. And over 75,000 of the enemies of the Jews were slain but God protected his nation. And so this very dramatic book tells us the story of Esther, a godly, courageous woman. Now, God doesn't tell this story just to give us a good story. God doesn't put this in the Bible just so on a hot night we can have an interesting story. In and over and under and beyond all of this marvelous piece of drama is the providence of God. And if you want to write 
something on your Bible that helps you remember what Esther is all about. It's not all about a beauty contest. It's not even all about a murder or a massacre. It's not even about a gallows. The main theme of the book of Esther is the providence of God. Now, what is the providence of God? Well, you know your Latin. You know what video means. Everyone knows what video means, even if you don't know Latin. Video means to see. And pro means uh, ahead of time. Provide, pro-video, providence, to see ahead. Now, providence from God does not mean he just sees what's going to happen. It means he determines things that are going to happen. When someone says, well, I'll see to it, that's the idea. That's providence. And so all through the book of Esther, you have the providence of God. And the amazing thing is this. You can read Esther from start to finish, and not once is God mentioned. The name of God is found nowhere in the book of Esther. Well, the Jewish scribes have found four passages in the Hebrew where if you read them backwards or sideways or some other way, they have an acrostic of the name of God. But God's name is not found in the book of, of Esther at all. And there are no miracles in the book of Esther. And there are no angels in the book of Esther. How in the world can God accomplish anything without miracles and without angels? That's the story of the providence of God. Now, if you ever find yourself discouraged, you've read the newspaper or you've watched the 10 o'clock news and it looks as though everything is falling apart, when life is difficult for you, when you feel like quitting, hand in your Bible, you're through, read the book of Esther. Read it and learn from it what God wants you to know about his providence. Because if you and I understand the providence of God, we cannot really stay discouraged too long. In fact, most of the time when we are discouraged, we're just licking our own wounds and feeling sorry for ourselves. Most discouragement is self-pity. We can't stay discouraged and defeated too long if we really understand the providence of God. And Esther wants to teach us tonight four great truths about the providence of God. Truth number one, God has his purposes to accomplish. Here in chapter 4, Mordecai says to, uh, to Esther, If thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then shall their relief and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place. Mordecai says God is determined to deliver the Jews. How did he know that? because Mordecai knew his Bible. Please don't think I'm being critical when I say this. I speak truthfully. In many cases, when you're trying to help people and they're defeated and discouraged and ready to quit, in many cases, you find yourself talking to people who don't know their Bible. Or who, if they know it, don't read it. Or who, if they read it, don't believe it. Mordecai knew his Bible. He knew the covenant that God had made with Abraham. Abraham, I'm going to make out of you a great nation. And through you, all the nations of the world are going to be blessed. And the nation that blesses you, I will bless. And the nation that curses you, I will curse. And Mordecai was praying, and Mordecai said, O oh, Jehovah God, 
You made this promise to Abraham. You reaffirmed it to Isaac. You even gave it to Jacob, as undeserving as he was. You have written it down in your word. You have affirmed it over and over again that your nation is not going to perish. Now here we are in exile. Mordecai's forebearers had been brought out in exile. He had not gone back to the promised land. He was probably criticized for that. There were probably people who said, do you know this fellow Mordecai? He won't go back to the promised land. He's a compromiser. He's worldly. He stays here. God kept him there to fulfill a purpose. You be careful about criticizing people for what God may be doing in their lives. Mordecai knew that the nation could not be destroyed because God had promised to take care of his people. God's providence means God has purposes to accomplish. Dear friends, this world is not wandering off like some drunken tramp. What is going on with this world and in this world is known by God and is controlled by God. God had his purpose for the Jewish nation. God had his purpose for the Persian people. God had his purpose for Israel. When you read the book of Esther, you discover God was working among the nations. And God was working among the individuals. There's a drunken king, but God was able to work. Here is a very proud queen. And she said, I will not go in there and shamefully be shown to those drunken men. God was able to rule in that case. Here's a beautiful Jewish girl, an orphan, raised by her cousin Mordecai. And God had a purpose for her life. Here was a man named Haman, a scoundrel, a wicked, godless enemy of the people of Israel, and God had a purpose in his life. God was not responsible for the king's drunkenness. God was not responsible for Haman's wickedness. But God had purposes that he was working out in this world. He had purposes for kings and queens. He had purposes for everyday people like Mordecai who sat before the king's gate. And God has purposes for you. You say, well, I'm not a beautiful uh, queen. No, very few people are. But God has a purpose for you. One of the first lessons you and I have to learn if we're going to accomplish anything in this world is I am important to God. God made me, and he made me as I am. What I do with what he gave me is between me and God. The talents, the gifts, the opportunities, these are God's gift to me. What I do with them is my gift to him. But I'm important to God. I may not be a king. I may not wear the king's signet ring. I may not have great authority, but I'm important to God. One of the devil's chief tricks in ruining the life of a Christian is having him look in the mirror and say, you are a zero. You are nothing. You're a failure. Everything you've touched has turned to clay. The beginning of real living is to look at God and say, oh God, you made me in your image. I can think your thoughts after you. I can have the feeling of your love in my heart. I can do things by your power for your glory. 
God, you have a purpose to accomplish in my life. And he does. Everyone here tonight can quote Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. That's how you got saved. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. How about verse 10? For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has before prepared that we should walk in them. That's what the Word of God says, that God prepares us for what he has prepared for us. And God has purposes to accomplish. Now, that's the first truth you want to lay hold of from the book of Esther. God has purposes to accomplish. Don't lose your sleep at night when you read some speech from someone in the Kremlin. God knows all about the Kremlin. Don't lose your adrenaline when you're reading the newspapers about the wicked things that are going on. Be concerned. Be in prayer. God knows what's going on. God has his purposes to accomplish. Truth number two. God accomplishes these purposes through people. There are no angels in the book of Esther. Now, God could have sent one angel down, just one. One night, one angel killed 185,000 enemy soldiers who had Hezekiah trapped in Jerusalem. And Sennacherib said, where in the world is my army? Well, they're dead. One angel. Now, God could have sent one angel down and said, hey, go down to that palace and take care of Haman, wipe him out, and take care of these enemies over here and protect my people. He didn't do that. He didn't send any angels. He did not perform any miracles. He accomplished his purposes through people. Now, there are two extremes we must avoid. We must avoid the extreme of thinking we do everything. That's not biblical. We must avoid the extreme of thinking God does everything. That's not biblical. There is a fatalism some people have, even some Christians. Well, if it's going to be, it's going to be. But I find that they don't apply this consistently. I've had, uh, I've had theological students say to me, now, pastor, don't get worried about having prayer meetings. Don't be concerned about visiting the lost. If God's going to save them, he's going to save them. Oh. I say, well, if God's going to feed you, he's going to feed you. Why did you sit down at breakfast? If God wants you to know history, you'll know history. Why read the book? Why do we go to extremes? What's wrong with us? The one extreme is man has to do everything, and man can't do it. The other extreme is God will do it all. That's wrong. Rather, Esther teaches us that God works through people. The same God who ordains the end ordains the means to the end. If God wants someone to be saved, he'll ordain someone to go talk to that person, pray for him, pray with him. If God ordains that a missionary is going to go to the mission field, he'll burden a church to give. God accomplishes his purposes through people. There's one word that ought never to appear in your vocabulary. If someone hears you say this word, I hope that they will get a bar of soap and a toothbrush and wash out your mouth. It's a four-letter word. Luck. L-U-C-K. Luck. 
Boy, I was sure lucky. Oh, no, you weren't. The word luck ought never to appear in a Christian's vocabulary. We don't live by luck or by chance. God accomplishes his purposes through people. Now, this means he prepares us. And the thing that excites me about Esther is this. God prepared her. For example, her birth was all prepared by God. God knew long before she was born that he was going to need her to accomplish a certain purpose. And so she was born at the right time. In fact, Mordecai himself said, who knows but that you are come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Her birth was no accident. Her birth was an appointment. The fact that she was a Jew. The fact that she was there in Persia. The fact that she was raised by Mordecai, a godly man. Her birth was prepared. Her bringing up was prepared. Even her beauty. It was no accident that Esther was beautiful. We don't have time to read it, but when you read chapter 2 and discover how they spent all this time preparing these women for the king. And you discover that Esther didn't need all the artificial help that the other girls needed. They didn't have, they didn't have to paint up her eyes, look like she was growing her own penicillin. They didn't have to paint, they didn't have to, they didn't have to glue great big eyelashes on her. Didn't have to do one thing. They just got the right perfume and the right kind of ointment. She had a natural beauty. Who gave her that, God? If God has given to you graces of the physical body, he has a purpose for it. Satan would like to use these things for his purposes. But her birth and her bringing up and her beauty and her being there, all of these things were a part of God's plan. You say, well, pastor, you sound as though God really has control of some things. Yes, he does. That encourages me. It encourages me to know that when the child of God is in the will of God, he can expect the hand of God to protect him and to provide for him. When I read the book of Esther, I discover that not only was God able to work in Esther's life and Mordecai's life, we expect that. Esther was a believer. Mordecai was a believer. They believed in fasting and praying. They trusted the Lord, but God was able to work in the king's life as well. I sat down and read this again, just for my own encouragement. In chapter 1, God was able to use the king's drunkenness. That'll stop you for a while. The king's having a drunken feast. Week after week, he brought in all the big wheels from his 127 provinces. And they had a drunken feast week after week after week. And God was able to use the king's drunkenness. Vashti was deposed. Esther was crowned. In chapter 2, God was able to use the king's loneliness. History tells us that Xerxes went out and tried to fight a battle and he lost, came back really feeling it. He said, I, I, I need a queen. They said, all right, we'll get you a queen. I miss my former queen. We'll get you another queen. God was able to use the king's loneliness. In chapter 3, God was able to use the king's foolishness. Haman comes in, and Haman had read how to win friends and influence kings. And he knew, he knew exactly how to butter him up 
and he said, oh, you're a great king and a marvelous king, and I'm your best friend, and I want you to help me protect you. Protect me from whom? Oh, there is a wicked nation that wants to wipe you out. And the king was so foolish. He said to Haman, all right, I'll give you carte blanche. It's all yours. Here's my ring. Go to it. And God was able to use the king's foolishness. Over in chapter 6, king couldn't sleep. That doesn't usually happen to me. Usually my problem is not going to sleep, it's waking up. But God was able to use the king's sleeplessness. He'd had too much coffee before going to bed that night. And he was tossing and turning. And so he said to his uh, helpers, he said, bring the book of records of the kingdom and, and read to me. I have certain books in my library that if I really want to go to sleep, I read them. And I can't think of anything more boring than reading the minutes, <laughs> the minutes of the meeting of, of, the, of the palace. And they're reading along and it says that Mordecai had unearthed a plot to kill the king. And the king said, well, what was done to reward him? Well, nothing. Well, let's reward him. This is one of the funny parts of the book. By that time, Haman comes in. And Haman is just, he's such a big wheel. He is so in love with himself. He's the biggest thing that ever hit that place. And the king says to Haman, what should be done for the man the king wants to honor? And Haman said, I'm the one he wants to honor. Why, he said, put him on the king's horse. Give him robes that the king has worn. Give him a scepter and let someone go before him and say, Thus shall it be done to the one whom the king shall honor. And Xerxes said, You go do that for Mordecai. <laughs> and oh, I tell you, Haman was tripping over his chin that day. God was able to use the king's sleeplessness. God was even able to use Haman's wickedness. Here is a man who hates the Jews. By the way, Haman would not have been there if King Saul had obeyed God. God said to King Saul, when you go out to fight the Amalekites, you wipe them out. Don't leave anybody. Well, he didn't do that. And Saul was slain by an Amalekite, although ultimately Saul committed suicide. And here is uh, Haman, an Amalekite. You know, someone doesn't obey the, the, the Lord. It affects everybody else. But God's even able to use Haman's wickedness. Here's a wicked man. He builds a gallows on which to hang Mordecai. He himself ends up hanged on that gallows. God can use even the wickedness, even the wrath of man to praise him. Do we believe tonight that our God is a God who is big enough and great enough and strong enough that where he cannot rule, he overrules? God has his purposes to accomplish, and God accomplishes these purposes through people. Now, this leads us to a third truth. If the people don't cooperate, they're the losers. Notice what Mordecai said to Esther in verse 14. If thou altogether holdest thy peace at this time, then shall there relief and deliverance arise to the Jews from another place will be delivered but thou and thy father's house shall be destroyed what's he saying here Esther you don't have to do it 
God is not going to send Michael down to get you by the nape of the neck and push you into the phone room. You see, God works through human responsibility. He says, you have got a responsibility. God has prepared you. God has put you there. You have been brought to the kingdom for such a time as this. Now, what are you going to do about it? If you don't cooperate, God will still get his purposes accomplished, but Esther, you'll be the loser. Every once in a while I hear appeals from pulpits or I read them in books and magazines as though God is at a loss to know what to do next. Oh, how desperately there's some need over here and God doesn't know what to do and God has called this person and he won't go. I want you to know something. God is going to accomplish his purposes in this world. When God finally wraps up the scroll of history, not one jot or tittle is going to fail. But there are going to be a lot of people who failed to get the blessing and the reward of God because they didn't cooperate. What did Mordecai say to her? Did he say, oh, if you don't do it, we're done for? He knew God better than that. He says, if you don't do it, you're done for. God will, will bring deliverance from some other place. I don't know how he'll do it, but he'll do it. He's got to be true to his word. But Esther, you'll be the one to lose. I think the time has come for us to face the fact honestly that we aren't doing God a favor by obeying him. We should not go to bed at night and say, Dear Lord, you are so fortunate that I am here. Did you see all the things behind my name in the yearbook? And they left three of them out. And God whispers from heaven and says, Oh, I'm so glad you're there. If a child of God gets out of the will of God, God will clobber him till he comes back. That's exactly right. And the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and preach unto it. And Jonah arose <laughs> and went to Tarshish. And God watched him and said, that, Who's your travel agent? That you're not going to Tarshish. I got a job for you to do back here at Nineveh. Everything in the book of Jonah obeys God except Jonah. The worm obeys God, and the gourd obeys God, and the dice obey God. Even the pagan sailors obey God. The whale obeys God. Jonah doesn't. And God says to the fish, you go swallow him. I know it's strange bait, but you go swallow him. And God spanked Jonah until Jonah finally prays and says, I will, I will. I will. And he did. His heart wasn't in it, but he did it. If the child of God disobeys God and God spanks him and God clobbers him until he obeys, and then if he still doesn't obey, he better watch out. I admire the courage of Esther. I would not minimize one bit the, the chance that she had in the hands of that pagan king to be slain. For it was one of the laws that nobody walked into the king's throne room. That was dangerous. You, you didn't do that. You might have a bomb or something. You, you don't get in. 
And the day came, and the hour came, and she walked in, and the king looked at her, and for one split second, it was touch and go, but oh, God was in control, and he reached out and held out his scepter and said, Queen Esther, what do you want? She said, I want you to come to a banquet I've prepared and bring Haman with you. Boy, Haman's stock really went up. He said, I'm almost in who's who. And they came to the banquet, and the king said, Esther, what do you want? She said, I want you to come back tomorrow night for another banquet. And so they came back the next night, and Haman said, Man, two, in two nights, I have arrived. He had arrived. Esther said, O oh, king, this Haman is a murderer. And she told the whole story. And the king was so angry, he got up and went out into the garden. And then Haman did a foolish thing. He fell down before the queen, trying to implore her for mercy. And the king thought that he was attacking the queen. And it didn't take much. They put a black mask over his face and took him out and hanged him and his sons on the gallows he had made. Those who fight against the will of God build their own gallows. God accomplishes his purposes even if we refuse to obey. But those who refuse to obey miss the blessing. Now there's a fourth truth that Esther teaches us. And some of you will not appreciate this. God is not in a hurry to accomplish his purposes. There's no indication here that God is pacing the throne room of heaven, biting his celestial fingernails and saying, oh, I better hurry up and do something. I, I sat down with a piece of paper and I made a, a chronology of this. I was amazed at how much time God took with all of this. It took three years before the first queen was deposed. This happened in the third year of his reign. And then four more years for Esther to become queen. God has spent seven years just getting Esther on the throne. Madison Avenue wouldn't do it that way. Some committees might work that way, but... This is not the way Madison Avenue would do it. They'd say, Esther, baby, you're going to be queen right now. God was not in a hurry to get Esther on that throne. He was working and preparing. It took him seven years to do it. Five years later, Haman begins this plot. It takes a while for evil to rise to the surface. Then there were three days of fasting and praying. And then there was another day for that second banquet. And then they had nine months before the whole thing was going to come to a climax. Nine months from that time, the Jews were supposed to be exterminated. There's a beautiful lesson in all of this. God knows what he's doing, and God knows when he should do it, and he is not in a hurry. We are... One of the great things I learned from Dr. A.W. Tozer was that God is very deliberate and patient in his working. I don't know how many times I heard Dr. Tozer say, and I remember reading it in his marvelous books, God is quietly at work in his world. Don't be alarmed. Now, it looks like God's failing. It really does. We know the end of the book. 
I love to read mystery stories over again, because I know the end. There are certain detective novels, the good ones, not the cheap stuff you see in the newsstand, but the good ones. I love to read over and over again, because I know how it's going to end up. I think that's why children enjoy having stories read to them that they recognize and they remember. They know how it's going to end up. No new problems to worry about. They know exactly how it's going to end up. You start reading this story and you say, oh my, a drunken king. What's going to happen? Oh my, he tries to shamefully expose his wife. Oh my, here comes a fellow who's going to kill all the Jews. And Esther and Mordecai are Jews. Haman gets promoted. Did you ever start worrying because somebody got promoted? Haman gets promoted. I know Christians who, who lose their peace at an election. Well, as you read this story, it looks like God's failing. Mordecai is ready for the gallows. Haman has all the authority. And then there comes that time when God says, okay, this is it, and the tables are turned, and the story changes. This is why I don't get all upset and worried over who is this one in office or what is that one saying or doing. I get concerned about evil in the world. I have to do what Esther did, pray about it. But I want to make myself available to the Lord for him to work out his plan in his time. As I was rereading Esther, it's fun just to read it, just to read it and read it. As I was rereading it again, God said this to me. Did you notice that uh, Mordecai didn't get his glory right away? Mordecai is sitting by the gate and he hears a couple of people plotting. And so he turns up his hearing aid and says, what are they talking about? They're going to kill the king. And so quietly he goes to work and he saves the king's life. They didn't give him a Medal of Honor. This went on for several days. No one knew anything about it. It was written down in the records. You have done some service for someone. No one said thank you. No one even came back to say, boy, I praise the Lord for what you've done. It seems as though God didn't even honor you. But there came a day when the records were read. And my friend, there's going to come a day when the records are going to be read. Anytime you and I have given a cup of cold water in the name of Jesus Christ, anytime we've served the Lord, and no one's seen it, be thankful. Then you can get your reward up in heaven. You can't get your reward twice. Either you get it down here, the praise of men, or up there, the praise of God. And one of these days, God is going to open up the record book, and he's going to say, well, this is what you've done. Let me honor you. And he will. The second thing I noticed as I read this book and reread it, was that God permitted Haman, the evil man, to get meaner and meaner, more and more wicked, higher and higher, and then he stopped him. God ultimately will triumph over evil. James Russell Lowell said it looks like Truth is forever on the scaffold and wrong forever on the throne. It looks like that, but it's not that way. I want you to know that evil men and seducers are going to wax more and more, greater and greater. As we get toward the end times, it's going to get darker and darker, and men are going to be more and more wicked, and we're going to see evil in high places. We're going to see the gallows built.
We're going to see the swaggering and the boasting. And then God's going to say, that's all. That's it. You've built that gallows for yourself. Your pride has led to a fall. Evil is not going to triumph. God is going to triumph. God is not in a hurry. Ultimately, he's going to succeed. Now, so that there isn't a long line of people waiting afterward to correct me. I'll tell you this, because I can see it already in some of your faces. There are some people in the book of Esther who are in a hurry. When you read the book of Esther, you find that there's a group of messengers. The Medes and the Persians had the most marvelous postal system. They had Pony Express long before we ever had it. We don't have Pony Express today. Might go faster if we did. Nowadays, we just horse around. That's all we do. But they had a Pony Express, and it was fast. They had posted places, and a man would jump on the horse, and he would have his saddlebag filled with the king's messages, and as he would drive through, he would give out the message. He'd get to a certain place and switch to another horse, and in just a short time, the king could get his message out to all of his provinces. When the king took his pen and signed that edict that the Jews should be killed, he gave the edict to the messengers. Off they went. You know what the world needs today? The world needs today some messengers to tell them that they're going to die. That's right. And then when the king said, we're going to pass another law, I can't change that old law. I'm going to pass a new law. You don't have to die. I'll protect you. They gave that message to those couriers and they got on their fastest steeds and they raced. You know what the Lord says to you and me? Hey, I've got some good news. We should go tell somebody. You don't have to die. <laughs> we aren't in a hurry, are we? Oh, we're in a hurry to get on the horse and take the scepter and put on the robe and be honored. We like that. The only people in the book of Esther who are really in a hurry are those couriers, and they had two messages. You're going to die. You don't have to die. That's what we're here for. God has called us to be his ambassadors to go out and tell people the wages of sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. Are we in a hurry to get that message out? I don't think we are. I said to you a little while ago that one thing that Dr. A.W. Tozer taught me was to believe that God is not in a hurry. But there's one place in the Bible where God is in a hurry. You know where it is. Luke chapter 15. The father is scanning the horizon looking for his wayward son. And he sees that bedraggled boy coming down the road. And my Bible says, and he ran and he fell on his neck and he kissed him. The only time God gets in a hurry is when a sinner says, Father, I need to be saved. And God runs to him and God embraces him and God reconciles the sinner to himself. There may be some sinner here tonight who ought to be in a hurry to come to God. Come and trust him. You and I as believers ought to be in a hurry to get that message out. 
God has his purposes to accomplish. We're not living by chance or by fate or by luck. We're living by the providence of God. God's purposes are accomplished through people. If I perish, I perish, but here I am. She didn't perish. She became a living sacrifice, her body dedicated to God. If we don't cooperate, we are the losers. God is not in a hurry, and ultimately he will triumph. Now, that encourages me. I trust it'll encourage you tonight to know that God is still on the throne and he will remember his own. I trust that you're one of his. Oh, if I speak to one Christian here tonight who's rebelling against the will of God, you hear me? God's going to accomplish his purposes. He'll get done what he wants to get done, but you'll be the loser. Don't be the loser. Be like Esther and say, here I am, a living sacrifice, even if it costs me my life. Oh, Lord, I will do the thing that you've called me to do. And God will bless you. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for the encouragement of this book. Thank you for the example of this beautiful woman who did not permit her exaltation to rob her of the burden for her own people, who did not permit wealth to rob her of her identification with those in need. Thank you that she used what she had to help others for your glory. Now, Lord, we have what we have because you've given it to us. A man can have nothing except it come to him from heaven. And gracious Father, we take what we have, it came from your hand, and we put it right back there. Here we are, Lord, we give ourselves to you. Work out your purposes in us and through us and accomplish your will for Jesus. All of Dr. Warren Wearsby's material is owned and managed by Script Text. The material contained in this podcast is copyrighted and is for personal use only, not to be duplicated or sold without prior written consent from Script Text.